a routine traffic stop can end in Black death. Hi, from The Grio, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer, and today we have a special guest co-host. Hi, I'm Tanisha Ford, professor of history at the Graduate Center CUNY, and you're listening to What's In It For Us. There's so many things we have to talk about. I've been following your Twitter feed. Obviously, I've just loved talking to you for well over a decade. Um, So today, I want to talk to you about the passing of hip-hop legend DMX, which has hit me in a way that I did not expect for it to. Uh, The video recording of military officer Karone Nazario, who was pulled over by the police, and the brutality he experienced. And of course, this happened months ago, and we're just now seeing it. And then lastly, the quote-unquote accidental police shooting of Duante Wright in Minnesota and all that's followed suit. So what are your thoughts on those three topics? The passing of hip-hop legend DMX left me gutted. Um, The video recording of Officer Carol Nazario was heartbreaking, but to be expected at this point in many ways. And the so-called accidental police shooting of Duante Wright um, raises larger questions about police procedures and the need and the cause to abolish the police. Mm, I know that's right. I cannot wait to dive in with that. Um, So as always, dear listeners, you all are listening to What's In It For Us, and we will continue to think about all these topics and more as we figure out what is in it for us. So, Tanisha, before we get into DMX, the the hot topic I want to discuss with you today is the passing of Prince Philip. So that's Queen Elizabeth's husband, which happened on the same day as the passing of DMX, which sent Black Twitter into a buzz, right? Because on the one hand, we are processing a grief that we will discuss in a moment. But on the other hand, (laughs) Black folks have no chill when it comes to the royal family, because I think folks are still salty at the way Meghan Markle has been treated, the way Black people in London have been treated, the way the royal family has essentially like raped and pillaged the world, especially uh, particular countries on the continent and the Caribbean. So I just felt like the sympathy factor for 99-year-old Prince Philip was a little null and void. What were you feeling when you were reading through Black Twitter? Listen, people did not see it for him they, at all. <laughs> um, and if you had any sympathy, you could catch a stray on that one. I mean, we saw what happened to Kerry Washington when she posted about the two of them, DMX and Prince Philip being in conversation, and she had to end up deleting that tweet. So I was just like, listen, you know, our people know that your family, the firm, you all have done us wrong for centuries, centuries. So no, there was no sympathy. And of course, Black Twitter went in as Black Twitter can. <laughs> I I cannot wait for, I know we're both academics. I can't wait for someone to write the scholarly work about the significance of Black Twitter. Because the way we are able to contextualize, like through the passage of Prince Philip, we are talking about diasporic relations. We're talking about colonialism. We're talking about racialized capitalism and the way Prince Philip, you know, sort of utilized patriarchy in, a, in this spectacular way. I mean, we're talking about Black don't crack. I mean, this man, I mean, as, as a human being, I was like, okay, I should hold space. There is a family somewhere that's grieving. Like his children have lost a dad. A woman has lost her husband. And 
I knew better than to type that out there because Black Twitter would be like, let me snatch all of these edges. We have no time for this 99-year-old band who has done God knows what and worse. Right. And, you know, one of our colleagues, Meredith Clark, she's actually doing that work on Black Twitter and Black Twitter as a social media space, but also as a social media tool uh, for news and reporting. But I knew that people were going to be prime whenever this man passed away because I posted a, a tweet. I tweeted a, a story about Queen Elizabeth and how I believe it was Barbados was saying that, listen, we are going to take her. She's no longer going to be our, our queen, you know, and it got hundred thousand likes people are not seeing it for the british family the british royal family and so i knew so when he passed away i was not at all shocked and then you add in sort of last month with Meghan markle and oprah and so bringing in a 21st century con conversation about blackness and this family and basically how she's like listen they treated me like you know I was, you can't even say redheaded stepchild because her husband's a redhead. So like, she was like, they treated me like I was worse than the worst. And we know that, you know, she's biracial, phenotypically, she tends to look more Anglo-Saxon. So if, if they weren't accepting that physicality, we know the Chrissy's and Tanisha's of the world better not roll up in Westminster Abbey, not never. Well, as with this and everything else, we will continue to think about what's in it for us, even with the passing of Prince Philip. Okay, so Tanisha, I want to start with the passage of Earl Simmons, also known as DMX, uh, who passed away at 50 years old in White Plains uh, after he'd been on life support for a few days, uh, and he was fighting to the very end, according to his family. And, you know, the Yonkers rapper uh, first made history kind of when we were coming of age, you know? I mean, there was so much of our, I think, college years that I think we can think back and remember sort of these hot songs in the club or wherever, you know, dances where we were and, you know, hitting not just the billboard charts, but like in so many ways, black folks felt like he was ours because in this era of like glitz and glamor and, you know, like puffy and sort of the, I would, I would say some of the fashion that you discuss, um, DMX just kept it so raw and real. And even though he was he was rapping about things that I personally hadn't experienced, I knew they were part of this collective Black experience in some way. And he touched so many people talking about essentially being in the carceral state starting at seven, you know, sort of being in a country that viewed him as a threat, a danger, and worthy of being thrown away from from a child. And so he was able to like channel all of that, not just in his rhymes, but then over these amazing beats that made us really stop and reflect. And he's, he remained consistent throughout his career in talking about that grief and pain. So I wanted to just check in with you because I, I read some of the thoughtful tweets you had really dissecting kind of the music industry and how they capitalize on black pain, even when it's the artist that is in pain and just kind of waiting to sort of make more money uh, even after something happens to one of us. Right, and that was really important for me. You know, I, I didn't tweet very much when I first heard the news of X's passing because as you said, he meant so much to so many of us who came of age listening to that music. And when he disclosed his battles with addiction and 
um, how he was introduced to crack cocaine, that was a story that so many of us grew up with. We knew aunts and uncles and cousins and brothers and sisters who too fell victim to hardcore drugs like crack. And so we immediately, we knew him, we loved him, we embraced him. So I had to take a, a moment just to pause and reflect. But once I did, I became enraged at these systems of capitalism, the music industry being one of them, that willfully exploits our people, that exploits our pain in life and in death. They make a profit off of us. And while we know that, that DMX um, fought in many ways for to maintain his own agency um, over his music, over his entity as an artist, um, that, that system, that machine, it's gruesome and it, it eats us up and spits us out. And, you know, Azealia Banks, who is problematic, but, you know, she's my problematic fave, I have to admit that, she said some very poignant things that I wanted to reflect on about how the industry will oftentimes give you your biggest vices in order to get you to reach that place of pain mm -hmm. that you can pull from in order to produce mm -hmm. the product that they're gonna sell, while also denying you Healthcare, yeah, and the help, and help, you know, and and so I, I wanted to think about that and hold those two things in tension. That there's a way that we can talk about the amazing man that DMX was to so many people in his own life, um, the fraught nature of his relationship, even with some of his his family members and his children, and also the incredible art that he produced, while also thinking about these larger systems of exploitation. And I think. For me, what I'm appreciative of, I think when we, you know, we teach the, the youth of America and have the privilege of doing so, I think what's so, what made me so happy, I guess, was the verses that he had with Snoop Dogg not too long ago. Because I, I do think that that introduced him to a new audience. Because as you said, the industry, you know, he was nominated for three Grammys, but he never won. But there's so many black artists that means so much to black culture that don't have the awards and the accolades and we still need to sort of honor them in, in different ways. Right, and, and I agree that that versus that moment of seeing DMX and Snoop in a space together, as we recognize the grief and the trauma and the hurt, we still have to find those places where we can find joy and express joy. And I think that that's why DMX's music is timeless because mm -hmm. He could do both of those things. And just by an, an inflection in his voice, right? Like, <laughs> oh, that's great. A whole emotional journey, you know? Shout out to my 94 Camry that had plenty of DMX blasting with my, my great carpet seats. But, you know, I, I think this point that you make up, uh, that you make about this joy and pain that Black people have to sit with sort of helps me move to our next topic, which is, you know, thinking about that video that was just released from December. Right, so the video recording of military officer Caron Nazario, who was pulled over and the brutality he experienced. And I think for me, he's in his military uniform and the pride that that uniform gives so many black families, right? Because they know the hard work that it takes for their loved ones to go through this system. They know the physical and the mental hard work because you're still in a white supremacist institution. And, you know, as a historian, you know, you're well aware of the way the uniform was used to lynch black soldiers when they came back from the war. So this pride that black people feel 
for having a, a family member representing this nation, a nation that sometimes doesn't even want us explicitly, but then also this immense pain where it's like, this man is in his car. He is all but minding his own business, having served our nation. And this is the, the brutality, the naked brutality that he experienced. It was in many ways too hard for me to process because if it weren't on camera, we never we would never know, right? And then also also just being so thankful that he's alive to talk about the anguish. Right. Because we know that in an instant it could have gone in a totally different direction and his family and loved ones and friends and comrades would have been devastated. A completely different direction. You know, these things can can happen instantaneously. Some a routine traffic stop can end in black death. And, you know, just to to your point about the uniform, I do, I think about writing right now about uh, World War II era black soldiers who come back um, mobilized, you know, as, as activists who, mm. who say, you know, we're gonna come back and we're gonna serve our communities and we're gonna fight for greater rights for our community. Like black soldiers who were an important part of the movement that we then call the civil rights movement, right? And I, I think about even in my own family, the, the men in my family who served in the military, my grandfather, World War II era vet, my father, a Vietnam War era vet. And I think about how they do not have any of the so-called protections or benefits that are supposed to come along with service to your country, mm -hmm. you know? And so to see this, this young officer be pulled over while wearing his uniform and, and when and like you said we, we didn't even get this video then no. so that also means the police officer had four months of salary and benefits right because they've been fired but that also means they had four months of receiving taxpayer money and putting money towards their pension that we're paying for as american citizens to pay for this brutality now you said you said something you know which brings us so obviously we have to hold multiple things at once. So the backdrop of the Derek Chauvin trial, and then also in Minnesota, just a few days ago, we see a 20 year old killed with, with his girlfriend in the car, by the way. So we're, you know, again, Philando Castile had his girlfriend and child in the car. We, we have, you know, another instance where now we've got Duante Wright, he's killed in the car with his girlfriend right there. Uh, accidentally, of course, because the police officer thought that she was going to have him ride the lightning and use her taser and instead shoots him in broad daylight, apparently over, she says it's tags, but it could be air fresheners. And so we have these routine traffic stops, which obviously, you know, there's no such thing when it comes to black people. But this, this idea that you said about how things change in an instant. So we don't, black people don't have the luxury of just going to the store, knowing for a fact that we'll be able to return going for a drive, knowing for a fact, nothing's gonna happen. This is why we, by and large, don't do extreme sports, right? Our extreme sport is going to the grocery store. Our extreme sport is driving a vehicle. Our extreme sport is trying to be black in this country 24 hours a day. And, and that's why, you know, I, again, I was irritated at tweets uh, from people who were saying, well, you know, he, he should have known better not to move or not to try to, you know, resist the police. Well, as you said, there is no such thing as routine for us, right? And uh, there's this system 
of charging us with petty misdemeanors, creating this system of, of fines um, that are attached to warrants if the fines are not paid. And then you, you, you put Black folks in a situation where what could happen to me if I'm, I'm pulled over and it's discovered that I have this warrant out for my arrest for something petty? What, what do we do? What are the recourses? So often we see Black people not left with no real recourses against the criminal injustice system, mm -hmm. right? And another thing that I was troubled by was, of course, this, this whole um, rationale, if we would want to even call it that, I don't, um, that the officer believed that she was pulling her taser, but it was her gun. Let's be clear, tasers are weapons of terror for law enforcement officers. Mm -hmm. They are. So um, even if this person did believe that they were reaching for a taser, they were reaching to inflict bodily harm on an African-American person. And Reuters did a study that said that Af Black Americans are more likely to die from um, engagements with police officers that involve a taser than any other race, right? Disproportionately, we die when we are tasered by law enforcement. And so to me, you know, uh, this just became another of a long history of this kind of taser defense. And people are, are invoking the name of, of Oscar Grant um, as, as they should. But then there's also Eric Harris in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There's Akira Lewis in Lawrence, Kansas. I mean, there's so many cases like this where we see officers attempting to use a, a taser defense to explain away their use of lethal force. Well, I think, you know, what's so important for all of us to remember, one, we have to protect our peace, right? Because we are holding a lot of things simultaneously. Uh, officers who, or, you know, Black folks who didn't die at the hands of police, but we're still seeing these videos, and then those who have. I think we also have to remember, you know, you contextualize these institutional structures. How is it that a fine for $346 turns into a warrant, turns into something that now is pun a crime of quote unquote poverty is punishable by death? When we know it happens to, to it doesn't happen to white people at all, but these ways that the state has made it such that our mere presence is a criminal act and they will tax it as needed to justify the incarceration of us. But if we are not incarcerated, then it also justifies the execution of us in broad daylight because there were far too many people who were like, but you know, if George Floyd hadn't had that $20 bill or if he hadn't resisted, I mean, there's always this excuse. If Tamir Rice, if Trayvon Martin, if Mike Brown had just gotten on the sidewalk, I mean, the ways that some folks, and I'm not gonna just say white folks because we know that some of our own people do it, are comfortable with the execution of black people by the state for petty misdemeanors is something that as we think about what's in it for us, we have to make sure that we not just protect one another, but we have to protect our peace because it's not just the institutional structures. It's also, this affects us watching these things, reading these things. This is why we have high blood pressure and hypertension. This is why, as you said, tasers do different things to our bodies because we're carrying different things in our bodies from this trauma from the state. Right, you know, that protection piece it's really important. Um, there's a way that we are inundated with Black death on the 24-hour news cycle, on our social media feeds. 
And, you know, I, I have a black son um, who's not much older um, than Duante and I just wanted to hug him, you know? I just wanted to hug him because I know that it has nothing, is not my doing at all that that black male child has survived to 25 years old, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and my heart goes out to our people, you know? We have and continue to endure so much in this country and oh i don't know yeah it's just yeah. no i i want to i want you to just leave it at that i think that that's powerful enough for our listeners to understand because you don't have to be a mother right to to know yeah. this i mean i know for mothers it is beyond difficult but like as black people we feel all of this for one another we know that our fancy degrees don't protect us our jobs don't protect us our neighborhoods don't protect us it is we are in this together yeah, and as we think about how we move forward i i just i want to let you know that i'm holding you in in my space just as you do the work that you do to kind of contextualize historically how we understand and we see our place in this country and what's in it for us um okay so before I let you go, I want to know, what are you up to these days? What are you working on? You know what, Chrissy, if I can stay off social media long enough, I'm working on a new book that looks at Black women who raise millions of dollars for social justice efforts in the middle of the 20th century. So I'm looking at um, how from the Great Depression to the Black Power Movement, it was Black women, grassroots fundraisers who supported what we call the Black Freedom Movement. And I'm looking at the hows and the whys and at what cost did they raise all this money for our freedom. So again, I'm trying to keep myself off of Twitter uh, long enough to do that necessary work of book writing. Mm. Well, promise us you'll come back once the book is all done and <laughs> tell us all about it. I want to thank you so much, Dr. Tanisha Ford, for joining What's In It For Us today. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio and executive produced by Blue Talusma and produced by Abdul Kadus and Antonio Thompson.